Coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show today, city council member from the Bronx, Richie Torres. Food justice with a Brooklyn up-and-comer, and sadly, strange fruit. Hi, and thanks for joining us today. I'm Ashley Ford. Do you own a car? Do you sometimes sit in it with the engine running for longer than three minutes? Did you know that you can get a ticket for that? Given the number of idlers out there, I'm assuming not. Actually, I'm assuming that cops may not even know that they're supposed to be giving you tickets for that, because they definitely don't enforce this law, since there's idling all over, all the time. <laughs> Why do I bring this up? Not just because it's one of our producer's pet peeves, Ross, but because by cutting down on idling times, we can cut our carbon emissions. Every year in this city, cars and trucks add more than 130,000 tons of CO2 to the atmosphere. Considering the number of cars, that's a lot of smog that in turn helps to give us asthma rates twice as high as the rest of the country. And then there's the money. Annually, just from idling, NYC drivers are estimated to waste more than $28 million in fuel. Think about what else you could do with $28 million. Lots of stuff. Okay, I hear some of you saying, hey, it takes more fuel to restart your engine. Wrong. That's a myth. In fact, it's believed that idling for just 10 seconds wastes more fuel than restarting. Well, what if I need to warm up my car? It's cold, Ashley. Warm it up by driving it. Just start driving slowly. And the same works for warming yourself. It doesn't happen any faster by sitting in it. Finally, you're saying this is just a progressive conspiracy to tell me what to do. And this is America. Well, it's not me telling you, it's the cops. Or it should be. Hear me, cops? Anybody? No. On the show today, Jarrett Murphy from City Limits will be talking to Councilmember Richie Torres. Yes, they're both from the Bronx. It's not a conspiracy, I promise. They'll be talking about a shift in power at the council, NYCHA, and what's at the top of his legislative list. Plus, what is food justice? Two activists will tell us. And then a theater piece that looks at lynching. But first, these things. A couple of weeks back, we talked about the El Chapo trial and the prosecution's request to make the witnesses anonymous so the notorious drug kingpin wouldn't whack them or try to influence them by threatening to whack them. Well, the U.S. District Judge has granted their request, despite defense protests that it will add to the impression that their client is violent. I don't see how they can prejudice anyone as to El Chapo's propensity for violence. Just look at his fan club like the one in a California state prison shown in a recently removed YouTube video, who, addressing Ch El Chapo, said, Everything is ready for you. What you say is the law. Here you have more than 3,500 soldiers. Look out. The trial is due to begin in the fall. Then there's this headline in the Wall Street Journal. Only in Brooklyn, boutique hotels near contaminated canal. The Gowanus. They mean. They mean the Gowanus, right? What are they trying to say? That Brooklyn businesses will try to exploit anything as added cachet or street cred? Because we're just so hip that anything transgressive is cool? Like advertising faux bullet holes in the wall of your bar as ambiance? Or proximity to a fetid butt of jokes waterway? Well, if that's your business model, more power to you. But I think they're locating their hotel next to the Gowanus because one day it will be clean and have a park. And Oh, wait, what's that EPA? You've halted the cleanup again? Uh, maybe next time. 
Edward R. Murrow High School's chess team is headed back to the New York State Championships to try to reclaim its crown. It's known in these parts as a chess dynasty, having been ranked number one in the U.S. eight times. Their prowess even caught the attention of Hollywood, who is turning a book on the Kings of New York into a film scheduled for release in 2020. But last year, they were runners-up, losing to a team from Scarsdale. This year's tourney is in March in Saratoga Springs. We'll be sure to keep you posted on every move. Stay tuned for Jared's talk with Councilmember Torres. A recent report in the New York Times talked about a shakeup in the city council. It happens every post-election year when a new speaker is nominated and committee chairs get rearranged. This year saw what many regard as a loss for the Progressive Caucus, which had been dominant over the past four years. There were some defections from the caucus, a more mainstream Democrat was elected speaker, and fewer progressives were named to head the various committees. This may seem like inside baseball, but it determines the priorities of the body and the laws that affect all of us. Here to give us his take on this, as well as on NYCHA and other city issues, is Councilmember Richie Torres from District 15 in, yes, the Bronx, a fellow Bronxite. Welcome to 112BK, Councilmember. It's an honor to be here in Brooklyn. <laughs> Thanks for being here. I have my passport. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so we've had a lot of uh, talk and criticism over the past couple weeks over NYCHA's performance. You've been yeah. very critical of Chairwoman Shola Oilataye. I'm curious, the most recent scandal or concern about heat and hot water developments across the city, what should she have done when that emergency hit? What would you have done if you were a NYCHA chairperson and suddenly all these boilers were fail failing, all these people were, were going cold? What was the appropriate response? Well, look, you know, the, cri the crisis of, of public housing stems not only from deep disinvestment, which is real, right? NYCHA has about $25 billion worth of unmet capital needs. But it also stems from deep dysfunction within the management structure of the New York City Housing Authority. There have been a series of personnel, policy, and budget choices that have contributed to NYCHA's dysfunction. The Housing Authority, for more than two years, had an incompetent chief operating officer who had no handle on the day-to-day -day operations. So there was no gen real general manager. There was the position of deputy general manager had been vacant. And I would argue those are the most important positions, because you're managing the day-to-day -day operations of the Housing Authority. And then on the subject of heating, you, a few months ago, back in October of 2016, at the outset of the heating season, NYCHA almost overnight lost 100 boiler technicians. Right? In NYCHA, you have too few boiler technicians servicing too many boilers. You have about 2,000 boilers in public housing. And in order to become a boiler technician, you have to pass the civil service exam, uh, go through training, complete a certification. We uncovered in our investigation that the civil service exam and the training had not been given since 2015. NYCHA effectively shut down the pipeline of trained heating plant technicians two years ago. So there was no set of employees who were prepared to compensate for the exodus of 100 boiler technicians from the Housing Authority. I mean, that's one of many examples of how a decision about staffing and a lack of planning exacerbated what I call a humanitarian crisis. You know, in our investigation, we found that 323,000 residents in public housing at various points had no heat and hot water. That's the size of many large cities in the United States. Imagine a whole city without heat and hot water. 
We've been talking about the crisis in NYCHA for, for many, many years, and I'm curious if you think, are we into a new crisis now? Is the crisis at a new level? $25 billion up from $17 billion was the previous estimate. Does this require some sort of rethinking on the city's part of how we're going to address NYCHA and, and whether, in fact, it is entirely salvageable? Well, it, is, it needs to be salvageable, because without public housing, public housing is the greatest safety net of affordable housing that we have. And the reality is, given the declining affordability of our city, most of the people who live in public housing may very well be homeless without it. So we presently have 60,000 individuals in our shelter system. Imagine New York City without public housing. We would have hundreds of thousands of people overflowing our shelters. So public housing must be salvageable. We must invest whatever capital is necessary to shore up NYCHA's critical infrastructure for the future. But money is only part of the equation. Management matters. Leadership matters. I'll provide you with an example in terms of boiler maintenance. There's a, a boiler in Staten Island dating back to 1950. And I asked NYCHA, why is that boiler not on your list of the 20 worst boilers? One would assume a 70-year-old boiler must be dysfunctional. NYCHA said it's actually outperforming our younger boilers because it's more well-maintained, and it's been maintained by skilled technicians. So that's an example of management. So we could provide NYCHA with $2 billion tomorrow to install new distribution systems and new boilers, but if NYCHA lacks the skilled staff, the technical capacity to maintain those boilers, then whatever investment we make will be self-defeating. So it's about money and management. Let's talk about the Progressive Caucus. As we mentioned yeah. in the opening, there's been some talk about it losing some influence. I know you left the caucus recently. What do you think the practical impact of that will be on legislation, the relationship with the mayor, the budget? What will it matter to people that the caucus is, it appears somewhat less influential than it was four years ago this time? Uh, no ideological impact. I mean, the council's ideologically monolithic. Almost all of us are Democrats, and almost all the Democrats are fun fundamentally progressive in their worldview. Some people have conflicting definitions of what progressive mean, but I would regard the council by and large as a progressive institution. I find that your membership in a caucus is less about ideology and more about your position in relation to a county organization, right? right? Those who tend to be members of the progressive caucus are much more suspicious of established power structures and county organizations, which has very little to do with ideology. That's more—it's more about politics than ideology. So in that sense, the progressive caucus has collapsed. Right. Uh, the, as a force in the speaker's race, there was a, a restoration of the traditional model for selecting a speaker through the county organizations, particularly— and just for people who are unfamiliar, county organization, what does that exactly mean? So the county organization is the party for the borough, for the counties. And even though there are five counties in New York City, only two or three boroughs have— robust county organizations—the Bronx, Queens, and, to a lesser extent, Brooklyn. And the Bronx-Queens alliance is the decisive force in the speaker's race. So, historically, the road to the speakership has run through the county organizations, particularly Bronx-Queens and, to a lesser extent, Brooklyn. The exception to the historical rule came in 2013, when the Progressive Caucus effectively staged a coup against the county organizations and were able to select the speaker with a huge assist from the mayor. 
What people wonder when we say the road runs through, just to stay on this for a second, is yeah. what exactly does that mean? For Corey Johnson to get elected speaker with the backing of the Bronx and Queens, um, going through that meant what? Making promises, satisfying certain people, passing some sort of a test. What does that mean in practice? Well, I think the ultimately the, the, the criteria are essentially the same, is you need member support. I mean, even, even if you're aggressively lobbying the county leaders, if you have no base of support among the members, then your candidacy will have no real staying power. And ultimately, Corey won the speakership on the sheer strength of his relationships with members. He put the most energy, the most time into cultivating deep friendships with a broad cross-section of members in the city council, and that was the driving force behind his victory. Uh, for a borough that's as small as the Bronx, for a borough that has far smaller numbers than Brooklyn and Queens, we are only as powerful as we are united, right? And because we have a strong county organization, we were able to secure a disproportionate share of powerful committees, something we would not have been able to do in the absence of a county organization. So there are three committees in the council that have divisions of their own, the Finance Committee, the Land Use Committee, and Oversight and Investigations. Which is your committee, my and, committee. and I'm curious. Two out of three of those went to the Bronx. And Oversight and Investigations, your committee, any sense what your um, sort of first orders of business might be? Any targets lined up? Well, our first target is the New York City Housing Authority. You know, since NYCHA was largely withholding the truth about the true nature and scale of the heating crisis, uh, the chairperson made public statements that 97 percent of the apartments in public housing had consistent heat and hot water. Uh, there's no evidence that that is remotely true. In fact, almost every unit in public housing, 143,000 units, had at various points no heat and hot water for an average of 48 hours. Unfortunately, we're very close to out of time, but I want to ask, in about a week's time, the mayor will give his State of the City address. What do you think he needs to say? What are you hoping to hear from him? That he is committed to not only articulating a vision of progressivism for the country, but, you know, I think the mayor thinks of himself as the leader of a progressive movement, right? And by virtue of the prestigious position he holds in the city of New York, but he should also pay as much attention to the operations of his agencies. And I think without his direct intervention, NYCHA will continue to be dysfunctional, right? In order for us to have a real, tangible impact in moving the ball forward at the Housing Authority, I think it requires his direct engagement. So I hope he speaks directly to the management failures at the New York City Housing Authority. Based on his public statements, I'm pessimistic. Well, Councilman Torres, uh, sorry to bring you down from the Bronx for a short talk, but a pleasure to have you. And Always happy to be you, in Brooklyn. Let you go back to the mainland. One of my friends says, the mighty Republic of Brooklyn. So, <laughs> Welcome to it. Thank you. Thanks, Jarrett and Councilmember Torres. It was interesting to me to hear about the framework that helps determine leadership in the council. I think that the general voter doesn't really get how it works, which, you know, we'll try to fix that. We'll get into that more in future segments. Now, we're in the midst of a food revolution, and it feels like it's pretty well represented in Brooklyn. More farm-to-table restaurants than you can shake a celery stalk at, we're composting, and we've got gardens on rooftops. But access to these resources is often restricted by income and location. In short, we have some food justice issues. Working to address them are our next guests. 
from the Northeast Brooklyn Housing Development Corporation, or NBHDC, Bianca Bachman, Food Justice Programs Director. Thanks for coming on 112 Thanks DK. Thanks for having us. And Ashley Eubanks, a food justice organizer who, by the way, is also a recent Brooklyn 30 Under 30 honoree. Welcome to the show, Ashley. Thank you. You guys, both of you, hitting it out of the park. First of all, Ashley, congrats on making Brooklyn's 30 Under 30, which is like so fantastic. I Thank was on you. that list a while ago. I heard. Um, I won't say how long. Um, but so many folks are just now hearing about food justice. It's something that was introduced to me in the past probably five years back in Indiana. I had a good friend who was working in food justice. Mm -hmm. But why are you working in food justice? Why is this so important? For Oh, um, simply put, I grew up in Hartford, Connecticut, which is a small city. Mostly, my neighborhood was like mostly black folks, and mm -hmm. it was definitely a food desert. So, which for me meant that like my family had to walk pretty far to get to the closest grocery store, and then that grocery store didn't really have like good quality food. But I also loved food, and I loved to eat, and um, I was just like frustrated with like the access that I had to food mm -hmm. in my community. And so, and then I'd always been like an activist and an organizer. So food justice organizing has been like a great culmination of all of my passions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Bianca, the work that you've been doing right now, especially with um, providing affordable renters to low to people with like low income, um, can you tell me about how food justice actually works into that? Yeah, absolutely. So. The Northeast Brooklyn Housing Development Corporation, or better known as NEBCO, mm -hmm. um, has been providing low-income and affordable housing for over 30 years. Um, and this has been so important as gentrification has been hitting Brooklyn and New York City as a whole over that same period of time. Right. Um, and it's only getting more and more drastic um, as we go forward. Mm -hmm. And you think of gentrification, you often first think of housing and displacement. Yes, absolutely. But What's also, what we also see it is all these fancy restaurants that you were just talking about earlier, <laughs> right? It is all these, like, boutique places, and it is a lot more organic and fresh produce. Mm -hmm. Organic and fresh produce is awesome. Yes. But it's not always an awesome price, and mm -hmm. definitely not an awesome price for Nebco's tenants and for our, their neighbors and our neighbors. Mm -hmm. um, so low- and moderate-income people need access to that um, food. And so a lot of our work is about um, connecting it for folks. So we focus on bringing more affordable food options into the neighborhood. We also focus on getting more money into people's pockets so that they can afford the good food that's in the neighborhood. Right. Mm -hmm. And then finally, we focus on getting people connected back to food, from farm mm -hmm. to plate, from gardening to cooking, um, to being in, com in community with each other around food and all of that. But it really does start with the basis of our housing work and right. our food. And we've also been running a food pantry for about 20 years. And wow. that's sort of been the basis for all of our food justice work, which is about four years old. Wow. Yeah. Ashley, can you tell me, what are some of the Brooklyn neighborhoods facing the most challenges when it comes to food justice right now? Uh, yeah, definitely. So it, it would be Bed-Stuy, where we work. Mm -hmm. Um, also neighborhoods like Brownsville, which mm -hmm. we also have property there. Um, it, it's really like, you can guess, most neighborhoods that are like, where there are low-income folks, where there are mostly like black and brown folks right. living, like they're, all of that is tied and connected. Like the racism and like economic struggles are tied with like people's issues and access to food. Mm -hmm. And how does that compare to what you saw growing up in Hartford, Connecticut? 
Really similar. Um, yeah. I actually, when I first moved to Bed-Stuy, it was a different Bed-Stuy, um, mm -hmm. and it reminded me a lot of home. Like, uh, there was, like, a lot of, like, Caribbean culture and influence, and also there weren't the grocery stores, like, some of the grocery—the one closest to me, whenever I, I walked in, um, the product, produce smelled, smelled rotten. Yeah. And so, like, I would never buy my vegetables from there. I would buy, like, dried goods from there, and then maybe I would, like, go to another place, like, in the city to get my vegetables. Yeah. Um, and that's how it was. Like, my mom, always growing up, would, like, do her shopping in different places and, like, usually had to leave our neighborhood to get, like, good quality, like, vegetables. Wow. Mm -hmm. And, Bianca, there were some recent reports um, uh, that— the food in schools here. Um, there were reports of vermin, um, things that were being kept at temperatures that spoiled the food mm -hmm. or, you know, encouraged rotting. Mm -hmm. Is that a food justice issue? Absolutely. I mean, the thing about food justice is that it is economic justice. Mm -hmm. It is about education. It's about jobs. Um, it connects to everything, and this right. is one of the ways, right? If our schools are underfunded, mm -hmm. then they're also not going to not only have problems with educating our children, but also with feeding our children. Mm -hmm. um, and on top of that, I mean, even beyond the health code violations, schools around the country, mm -hmm. very much including New York City, they count pizza and french fries as vegetables. Oh, yeah, they did when I was in school. Yeah, mm -hmm. for and sure. when you count that as a vegetable, mm -hmm. you're not feeding the children right, they don't have the energy levels that they need in order to learn, and they're not learning about right. what good food is. Yeah, they're not. And I feel like that's something that I've noticed from um, quite a few kids, and even for myself, when I went to college, the things that I thought were healthy food were not healthy food. Like, and I learned very quickly yeah. that, oh, this is, can't eat this it's every day. Insane. Like, I thought chili was just healthy, like, just because it's chili. Mm. I was like, oh, chili is inherently healthy. No, it's not. <laughs> That was a lesson that I had to mm -hmm. learn. Um, in some neighborhoods, it seems like there's this overabundance of food. It's everywhere. But I guess that that would also lead to a lot of food waste. So what can we do to better connect these, you know, food vendors and grocery stores with people who need the food? I mean, they say that there's a, a famous quote by a woman named Frances Moore LePay, and she mm -hmm. talks about... Um, hunger not being a problem of food scarcity, but of democracy. Yes. Um, and it's also a question of distribution. Mm -hmm. And so the waste that's sort of experienced at the level of what happens at our dinner table or the level mm -hmm. of what happens at our retailers um, is sort of the outgrowth. It's the surface-level issue of this bigger problem of how our whole food system is set up. Mm -hmm. So we have to address policies around food. Um, and we also have to look to those opportunities to connect restaurants, to connect mm -hmm. bodegas, et cetera, with other options to do with their food. So a lot of people, there's an organization here in Brooklyn called BK Rot, um, and they work with young people to collect um, food waste at restaurants mm -hmm. to compost it. And then they wow. use that at garden sites throughout, mm -hmm. throughout the area. So still waste, mm -hmm. but not at all going to landfills and definitely going back into feeding our communities. So there's all kinds of different options like that as well. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, thank you both for being here. I really appreciate it. And hopefully we'll have you back again soon to keep talking about these things. Awesome. Yeah, thank you. To. Continuing our look at Black History Month, in perhaps her most iconic and haunting song, Strange Fruit, 
Billie Holiday sang a protest to the inhumanity of racism, evoking the visual and psychic horror that was the lynching of blacks in post-bellum America. Perhaps it's no coincidence that a play devoted to that history, the public murder of more than 4,000 people, is being performed at the Billie Holiday Theater right here in Brooklyn. To tell us about it is playwright Lakeitha Dalco, author of A Small Oak Tree Runs Red. Thanks for coming on the Thank show. Thank you for having me. <laughs> and joining us is the play's lead actress, Kira Ridley. Welcome to 112BK. Awesome. You. <laughs> you ladies. I'm so very excited about this play. I'm hoping to see it. But oh, even just please. talking about it has been amazing. This is some really powerful subject matter. Mm-hmm. Hard to talk about, but you brought it to the stage. I'm wondering, can you speak to me, Lakeitha specifically, sure. about what the audience can expect from A Small Oak Tree Runs Red? Um, the audience will definitely walk into um, a realm that they, they're not probably used to seeing. I call it a place between heaven and hell, mm-hmm. purgatory-esque space. It's a different way of telling um, this, this narrative that just came to me one day from a, the voice of the, a baby's cries. Mm-hmm. And so they're going to walk into this space and they're going to meet three characters based off of uh, true um, events that's going to take them on a journey of remembrance right. and as they try to remember mm-hmm. as well. Right. And what inspired the writing of this? Um, I was working on my thesis at the time a couple of years ago, and I've always been one that's attracted to history. Mm-hmm. Um, as a small child, I would sit in front of the encyclopedia and, like, um, see how stories are connected. Oh, yeah. And for some reason, <laughs> <laughs> lynchings um, mm-hmm. came to me. And so I was searching for a particular story. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I was a new mother myself. And I wow. came across Mary Turner and um, mm-hmm. the gruesome way in which she was, was lynched. And while she was eight months pregnant, mm-hmm. that really sung to me. So it came basically as a out of empathy. Right. To, so that's really why I approached the story. Wow. Yeah. Kira, can you talk to me about this role? It seems like yeah. it would have been extremely challenging yeah. to get into the headspace for this role. Can you talk to me a little bit about how you got there or how you get yeah, there? Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, Harry Lennox, who's the director, has more of a... Um, outside-in approach, Mm -hmm. so he focuses a lot on physical gesture and how that puts the actor into the mental and emotional space of the character. So, for me, it was uh, very safe, I guess, walking in Mary's shoes, entering her her world. Um, But still, even with that, it it is a very intense process. And um, But what I always want to come back to is that this story is a love story. Um, And so, what propels Mary to face um, the men, the white men who lynched her husband, husband mm-hmm. is her overwhelming love for her husband and um, her love um, for justice and, and, and mercy and peace that she pursues yeah. in the play. Did you feel any hesitation about taking on this role? Um, no, not really. Yeah. I mean, it's an incredible cast and incredible director, an awesome play. So I found it as a, a great opportunity to tell the story. Mm-hmm. Um, it's important to remember the story because it's that old saying that if you don't remember, then you're doomed to repeat it. So absolutely, absolutely. yeah. Mm-hmm. Can you talk to me about why this play right now? Well. I mean, first of all, I'd like to say, even though this is a story of uh, 1918, now we're on a 100-year anniversary of, mm-hmm. of the lynching, um, it came very much from a woman who was trying to find a way to deal with Trayvon Martin, trying to find a way to deal with uh, many black men that were being lynched in new forms. Mm-hmm. So it's very much a play of today, because the mm-hmm. words that spoken, all the, all the rage, the love, the hurt, was what I was feeling at the time. Mm-hmm. And also... There were nooses found, found recently in various parts of Brooklyn. Um, so oh, yeah. the, the the climate of telling these stories is very much still needed. 
So Absolutely. Definitely. Here, what's it like to play this character right now in this yeah. current administration and the mm. climate and the conversations that are happening constantly? Like, yeah. do you bring, can you bring that stuff with you to the stage? I always mm. wonder that, especially yeah, when we're doing something that has more of a historical mm-hmm. bend. Yeah, I mean, as an artist, I always look at acting as I'm bringing. Um, a gift or something very sacred and important to the audience members, whether um, they're, like, moved emotionally or, you know, they learn something and take something away from it. So, you know, whatever um, I hop on stage and I say, you know, those words um, that Mary says, um, yeah, that's definitely something that I, I think about. Um, the climate, um, you know, the—but, again, the situation of, of the current uh, state of the play, you know, being in 1918 in Valdosta, Georgia, and how to make that relevant to, you know, New York City, <laughs> right. Brooklynites, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's definitely possible, because um, at, at the end of the day, it's the black struggle yes, um, facing definitely. racism in America. And it may not, you know, be as explicit as lynchings, um, mm-hmm. but still, it's, you know, it's under the radar. It's much oh, more yeah. covert. It's there. Definitely. It's there. Yeah, definitely. So all of the people who are listening to this, watching this, getting a little bit of snippet of this <laughs> somewhere, they're going to want to come see the play. How do they do that? Oh, definitely. You can um, get tickets at um, www.thebillyholiday.org. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can show up to the box office <laughs> if you want to as well and purchase tickets. Um, mm-hmm. And we're right in the um, the helm of Brooklyn. So come on out. When's yeah. it playing? Um, it's playing now. We're, we're, we open tomorrow, actually. Yeah. Wow. Um, and yeah. it runs through March the 4th. Yep. Fantastic. <laughs> yes. Thank you both so much for being here. Yeah, I really appreciate thank you it. For having thank us. you for having us. Thank <laughs> Thanks for joining us today. Tomorrow we'll be back with another city council member, Rafael Espinal, to talk affordable housing and dancing. And we'll talk policing with a persistent critic of NYPD practices and policies. Hope you can join us. 112BK is hosted by me, Ashley C. Ford and is written and produced by Ross Tuttle. It's also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Barbie, Emily Bogosian, Naive Van, Critzy Roberts, Charmaine Lamb, and is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer. Our show is recorded by Eric Hogsack, Antonio Rosario, Leslie Hayes, and Steve Desset. And our theme music was composed and produced by Brad Parker. Our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leap, and Sasha Mathias.